Welcome to Hoarding 101. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. My name is Dr. Danny Slichter, and I'm a clinical psychologist, and I specialize in working with people who have hoarding disorder. Um, and I will be referring to hoarding disorder sometimes just to shorten it as HD, okay? Um, I tend to talk fast normally, but then when I'm public speaking and a little nervous, I could like, so if you see me and like you're not understanding, because I'm going really, really, really fast, just kind of like, Danny, slow it down. I won't be offended. So my goal is that I'm gonna give you kind of a brief intro into what hoarding disorder is, because not many people are familiar with it, because it's fairly new in terms of identifying it as a mental illness. And then I'm going to share with you a few assessments that you can use in your work to figure out the level of hoarding you're dealing with, the severity, and then how to identify the health and safety risks within the home. And then I'm gonna give you practical tools that you can use when working with people who have hoarding. And I kind of divide it up into people who are open to treatment and people who are resistant to treatment, which is probably the kind of people that you encounter most. I call the people who are open to treatment more like the unicorns of the world, so. And if you have a question, like a short, brief kind of question, please feel free to raise your hand. If you have something longer that's like, I had this case where, try to save it to the end and I hopefully have enough time, okay? All right. So here are some photos of different hoarding situations. Art lover here. We might see this as a bunch of trash. I guarantee you these are their treasures in their view. One thing I like about this picture is this seems to be some kind of living room or study and there's a garden rake smack dab in the middle. And I think what this really represents is the fact that we all kind of have clutter in our lives and stuff, but what you see here is a real lack of ability to organize, to categorize. Because even if you had too much stuff, you still might put that rake outside, in the garage, on the patio, somewhere not in your living space. Yeah. This is definitely feeling more like trash to us, and we get into more health and safety issues here. This is one that breaks my heart, is the, the animal hoarding. Yeah. Um, what is interesting about this picture to me is the microwave in the middle of the living room. Because if you can see behind, there's a fireplace. So this is kind of a, a living space, you know, probably with a TV and stuff. And what probably happened in this case is that the kitchen became so cluttered, so hoarded out, that they were unable to prepare their food there. So they probably bought or used one of their several microwaves that they might have on hand, and they put it right there. Um, the, sometimes, too, the fridge gets really hoarded out, so you'll see people having mini fridges in the living room or ice chests that they use to keep their stuff that needs to remain cold. So sometimes food safety can be a real issue. Yeah, someone who likes a lot of uh, papers and books. Here's an example of that kitchen I was talking about. You can't prepare food, and even if you tried, it, it wouldn't be safe, right? What's interesting about this picture is just the level of hoarding going on. So you see on the right-hand side, it reaches almost all the way to the ceiling. And if you look at that doorway there, that is not a closet. That is the entrance to another room. 
So the level of hoarding is so severe that it's almost to the ceiling into different rooms. Okay. Um, so what is it? What is hoarding disorder? So um, there's DSM, which you know, you guys are familiar with the DSM. That's like the big book that has all the mental illnesses in it and stuff. It was only put as a, a mental illness in the most recent DSM, the DSM-5, which was 2015, I think it came out. Research into hoarding only started in the 90s. So this is kind of new to us as mental health professionals, although it's been going on since the dawn of time. Um, so this is kind of a non-DSM, but has all the aspects of DSM definition. So uh, hoarding disorder, the acquisition of and failure to discard a large number of possessions that appear to be useless or of limited value. In other words, you bring in a bunch of stuff, but you can't seem to get rid of anything to make room. And from an outsider's perspective, these are items that are taking over the home that don't seem to be that important. Again, from the insider perspective, it's their treasures. Um, and then living spaces sufficiently cluttered so as to preclude activities for which those spaces were designed. So you can't use your bathroom to get ready in the morning. You can no longer cook a meal in your kitchen. Maybe you're sleeping on a chair in the living room because there's just too much stuff on the bed or you can't even get into your bedroom. And then finally, like with any mental illness, it has to reach the level of significant distress or impairment in functioning that is caused by the hoarding. So your life is simply becoming unmanageable because of the stuff for you, for your family, for both. Um, as you might have noticed, if you've ever encountered someone who hoards, there's a lot of shame around it. Um, there's a lot of stigma around it. People don't even want to say the H word. Um, so I find that if we can reframe that, if we can provide some psychoeducation about what it is and what's really going on, it tends to release the shame a little bit. So first of all, this is a legitimate mental illness, right? Having um, HD doesn't mean you're lazy, it doesn't mean you're stupid, and it's not some kind of moral failing, because that's the kind of cultural stigma that seems associated with it. Um, simply put, People who have HD, their brains are just wired differently than people who don't. Um, with each neurological study that they're doing about HD, it becomes more and more apparent that the brain of someone is just different from the non-HD brain. Um, I like to compare it to someone who has dyslexia. So someone who has dyslexia, they can try till the cows come home to keep reading the same thing and they're still gonna have the same challenges. And they're maybe being called lazy, they're maybe being called stupid, but they're working their booties off trying to figure out how to get a handle on this reading thing. Finally, they get diagnosed and they get sent to like a reading specialist who gives them very special tools to kind of work around the brain neurology that's going on. And it's the same thing here. We can provide them tools to work around what their brain is telling them to do so they can overcome it. So it's not a learned behavior. It is in fact neurologically in your, in your brain, like the way you're wired, and it's genetic, it's passed down, right? So it tends to run in families. Okay, so um, I really like the dyslexia comparison because it does release the shame about it. Maybe 50 years ago there was shame around dyslexia, but we've kind of overcome that. <laughs> So what kind of stuff do people tend to hoard? Usually, most commonly, you're gonna see um, paper stuff, like newspapers, bills, magazines, junk mail, receipts, 
you know, business cards, that kind of stuff. Um, also very common is clothing. You might see 30 bags from uh, TJ Maxx that are 20 years old that have the, you know, the tags still on them. Uh, food, also very common. A lot of times you'll see expired food that they're still saving. Um, the animals, which gets me. And um, trash, because, you know, take that empty yogurt container, there might be a use for it one day, right? You never know. I'm going to save this baggie. I'm going to save this, you name it. So saving is kind of in three different ways. There's instrumental saving. This is where the item fulfills some kind of purpose. Well, I could fix this up and sell it one day, or I might need it one day, so I'm going to hold on to it. Um, then there's sentimental saving, where the item represents an extension of yourself. Like, oh, I remember my trip to wherever, and I got this little souvenir, and it just brings back such good memories for me. Or, my son wore this lion costume in his fifth grade play when he was, you know, 10 years old, and her son's now 52, right? Um, and then just the aesthetic. It's just so beautiful to look at. I mean, I just so admire the craftsmanship of it. And if I give it up, it might not be taken care of and appreciated the way that I do. So is it about acquiring? bringing stuff in, or is it about difficulty letting go or discarding? So people who have HD are all unique in their presentations, and people have different balances of each of those things. Um, so usually, though, when hoarding starts with um, usually an early adolescence, which I'll get to that later, um, the saving and the clutter problems might come first, because if they're young, they probably haven't you know, gotten to some kind of financial independence yet, and they're still living under someone's roof who won't let things get out of control. And then once they have more financial independence, once they have more room that's just theirs, that's when you'll see it really start to skyrocket. And there are uh, people with HD who compulsively shop. Not all compulsive shoppers hoard, and not all people who hoard are compulsive shoppers, but it could be an aspect to the disorder. Um, so for those that aren't familiar, comorbidity basically means you have more than one mental illness, right? So about 75% of people that have hoarding disorder have some kind of comorbid mood or anxiety disorder. About 50% of them have major depression. Very common also is social anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and about 20% also meet the criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. And this might seem kind of weird because when you think of com obsessive compulsive disorder, you think of people with like neat stacks of stuff and very minimalist and very clean. Um, but OCD just means you have obsessions and compulsions. It could be about anything. Um, yeah, generally they're not the ones <laughs> that have the very like stacks of things neatly organized and all of that stuff, although I've seen that too. Um, and usually if they're going to seek some kind of help or treatment, it's not because of the hoarding. It's because of the OCD. It's because of the depression. It's because of the anxiety. And I think that's one of the reasons why the mental health professions didn't really identify this as a real mental illness until like the 90s. It's because we were seeing people in our offices and they were coming there for help with anxiety. So we help with anxiety. Now, because of services like FSP and things like that, we're going into the home 
and we're really seeing it. So anyway, the idea of this is it's really important to look at the whole client, right? Because the way that you might interact or treat somebody with major depression and hoarding is going to differ a little bit from the way you would work with someone who has OCD and hoarding. Um, so now we get a little nerdy. Uh, so I talked about how it is uh, genetic. It runs in families. It's a genetic variant of OCD, actually. It's kind of like the mirror image of OCD, and it's right next to OCD in the DSM. Um, and they found, for any of you geneticist nerds out there, that there are genetic markers on chromosome 14. So go take a look. <laughs> uh, neurological studies have also noticed brain differences, such as the damage to the frontal lobe. So if you have damage to your frontal lobe, some of the effects of that are going to be impairments in decision-making, planning, anticipating future consequences of your behavior, and maybe some information processing deficits. They also found abnormalities in the parietal and occipital regions of the brain, which could cause impairments in visual and spatial processing and visual memory. And there's also differences in something called the cingulate gyrus. I'm not a neurologist, I don't really know what that is. And it has, you have lower levels of glucose metabolism. The effect of that is that you have impairments in focused attention, motivation, executive control, and emotional self-control. So let me kind of run these by again and see if you can kind of link these with how hoarding presents. Impairments in decision-making, planning, anticipating future consequences of your behavior, maybe some information processing deficits as well, impairments in visual and spatial processing and visual memory, and impairments in focused attention, motivation, executive control, and emotional self-control. How hard would it be to function with all of that going on? Another thing they uh, looked at is this thing called the salience network. We all have it. Um, it's the stuff that's all, it's the network in the brain that's all lit up in the pictures. Um, and this is a network within your brain that tells you to pay attention. This could be important. So for instance, if the lights up above were to flicker, our natural reaction would be to look up and see what's going on. That's the salience network. Now, for people who have hoarding disorder, the salience network is chronically underactive, and it causes something called clutter blindness. So if you've ever watched any of those hoarding shows, you might have noticed how the person who's hoarding just like doesn't seem to notice the mess around them. They're like stepping on, they call them flat cats and you know bags of trash and stuff, and they're just not really letting that information in as to, wow, this is something big. Um, their brain is telling them that nothing particularly important or out of the ordinary is going on here. However, their salience networks can go into overdrive um, when they are asked to make a decision. And so it's like if you put on um, heavy metal music at like the loudest volume possible, you don't hear the lyrics, you don't hear a tune, you just hear like, noise coming at you. That's their salience network when they have to make a decision. So I say, Mary, I have here a paper coffee cup and a Rolex watch. Which one do you want to keep and which one do you want to discard? Their salience network is like And they're like, I don't know, they both seem really important to me. 
So imagine going through that every day. So this is where we're going to talk a little about prevalence. So somewhere between 2 and 6% of the whole population has hoarding disorder, and most research is kind of landing around the 5% statistic. That is the second most common mental illness. We're just under depression. Depression's about 7%. And like nobody's talking about it. Um, and then possibly up to 22% of the homeless or formerly homeless population have hoarding. That's huge. Now the reasons for that, I don't know if there's been studies about it. I haven't seen any. My guess is working with these populations is that, well, who, you know, hoarders often get evicted. <laughs> so they become homeless, so there's that. And then another way, besides just early adolescence hoarding coming on, is that you can um, start to hoard is some kind of trauma. So somebody might be 52 years old and um, a very close relative dies, or they've been in some kind of attack, something super traumatic. They happen to have all the genetic criteria to start hoarding disorder, and it turns on. So what is more traumatic oftentimes than living on the street? I mean, every day you encounter traumas all the time. So I'm thinking those that actually kind of have that genetic makeup and that neurology, I think those traumas might turn those people on to the hoarding. Okay, so I kind of said this before anyway. So basically most, uh, most cases of hoarding start in, in adolescence, but like I said, if there's a trauma or something, it can spark hoarding. So if I had to sum up what hoarding disorder is, I would say it's an avoidance behavior. So one thing they do is avoid decision making because they have this fear of making the wrong decision. So what do I throw away and what do I keep? There was a really interesting study um, in which people with HD and people with non-HD were hooked up to fMRI machines. And these are machines that kind of tell you in real time where your brain is lighting up so they can tell what's going on. Um, it found that when someone with HD has to make a decision, a part of the brain is activated that de deals with conflicting information or uncertainty. And there's also a part of, brain, of the brain that gets activated that's associated with negative emotions like disgust or shame. So basically when someone with hoarding disorder has to make a decision about an item, their brains attach too much value on the item and it makes it difficult or even impossible for them to get rid of it. Their brains are kind of telling them they're making the wrong decision before they even make the decision. So they start to avoid decision making altogether. Um, so they also avoid discarding, letting go. In other words, they're saving. And this is different than the decision-making part of it because when they discard, there are feelings of grief, of loss. I mean, almost like the grief and loss you experience when you lose a loved one. That's the level that they're dealing with. So no, they wouldn't want somebody else to make that decision because they don't want to feel those feelings. So they avoid discarding in order to not feel those feelings. Um, Oftentimes, they just start to avoid routine tasks like sorting mail, returning phone calls, washing dishes, paying bills, paying rent, paying taxes. So this might start to get them into some level of trouble. But when they avoid all of these things, 
they avoid those feelings that none of us like, anxiety, grief, loss. It's all uncomfortable. And we all do this anyway, right? I mean, it kind of explains uh, substance abuse, right? Because what are we doing? When I'm having a bad feeling, I'm going to have a drink, or I'm going to shoot up, or whatever your drug of choice is. Um, I talked a little bit about, as one of the effects of the frontal lobe stuff, some possible information processing deficits. And what can happen if you happen to have that is you have uh, poor attention to whatever you're doing. So some people with HD also can be diagnosed with ADHD, um, either inattentive type, which is kind of without the hyperactivity element, or some people actually have the hyper element in there too. And if you remember the rake, in that picture, the garden rake in the living room, they have difficulty categorizing their possessions. They also have this perception that their memory is poor. Now, studies have shown that their memory is neither greater or worse than general population's memory, but they really think that they have this horrible memory, so I'm gonna keep everything out in order to have visual cues so that I don't forget. And some people have difficulty using information to draw conclusions and make decisions. So imagine you have piles and piles of stuff to go through in your home. I mean, it would be overwhelming for anyone. But also imagine you had problems staying focused, categorizing and organizing things, and real problems making decisions. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to get started. As you might imagine, this affects their daily functioning. <laughs> this might seem counterintuitive, but many people with HD are perfectionists. They have this all or nothing thinking. Um, so it becomes difficult to eat, you get kind of like paralyzed. You look at this mound of stuff and you want to start organizing it and going through it because you're not happy with the way you're living, but you just look at it like, I. I don't even know how to get from point A to point B. It's so overwhelming. I'm just going to do something else, and they avoid it. Um, sometimes their daily rhythms get upset, so maybe they're sleeping during the day or they have inconsistent eating patterns. Um, if they are on particularly like prescription medications in which you have to take them with food or you have to take them at certain times of the day, they might lose them, they you know, get lost in the clutter, or um, you know, they take them at the wrong time. So it can have real health consequences too. And then as you've seen in many of the hoarding shows or in just some of these pictures, sometimes this clutter leads to really unsanitary, unhealthy conditions. So you might see infestations of insects or rodents, maybe animal feces or human feces, rotten food, uh, fire danger, earthquake danger here in earthquake country. So let's move on to a couple of different assessments that might help you figure out some important information about the client you're working with. So the first thing, and it's hopefully in your handouts, is called the clutter image rating. Um, this was created by one of the pioneers of hoarding research. His name is Dr. Randy Frost. He's out of Smith College in Massachusetts. Um, and he took a group of his grad students to an empty apartment and they took pictures as they gradually cluttered up the kitchen, the bedroom, and the living room with more and more stuff until they figured out kind of nine stages of clutter. And if you are at about a four or above, you're probably looking at hoarding disorder. So let me show you a little more detail. Um, 
So how would you use this? There are actually a number of really great ways that you can use this. One is to see how much insight your client has into the problem. There was actually an interesting study where um, people with HD were given pictures of hoarded rooms and kind of they didn't know, but inside some of these pictures were pictures of their rooms. And they were going through it just kind of like, oh, that's just horrible. Oh my goodness, look at that mess. And they were, didn't even notice that their own room was included. So it just shows you the level of insight that some of these folks have. Some people have more insight than others. And in fact, um, when you're diagnosing someone, there's a thing about some subject has good insight, subject has moderate insight, or subject has fair or poor or no insight. You kind of uh, qualify that. Uh, so yes, so if you go into their room or see a picture of it and you're like, this person's at a seven, and you give them this and you say, hey, where do you think your bedroom is according to these pictures? And they're telling you they're at a three? That's a real clue to you and some really good information as to the insight that you're dealing with. Um, you can also use this if you're working with other people, because I know FSP, you work on teams a lot of the time. So this is a really good way to communicate with other people that might not regularly see the space where the client is at. And if there have been any improvements or if it's gotten worse. So you have your monthly meeting about this client and you're like, the client was at a level seven last time you were there, it's popped up to an eight. Everyone else at that table can look at this and say, ah, I know what you're talking about now. So that's very helpful. And it's also good like if you're working on getting the problem under control, like within your notes, you can kind of uh, use this assessment within your notes to monitor where there's progress or not. Okay, so another thing you have is the, it's called the HOMES Multidisciplinary Hoarding Risk Assessment. Um, and HOMES stands for Health, Obstacles, Mental Health, Endangerment, Structure, and Safety. And this is gonna help you assess the level of risk in the household. I don't know about you, I am not skilled in any kind of Bob Vila-like you know, skills. I don't, I don't know if something like a floorboard's rotting or if the structure is unsafe or any of that stuff. That's not really within my wheelhouse. But this kind of gives you a, a quick and dirty way to assess what's the level of health and safety in the home? What might be the targets that we want to go in first to address? Basically, it looks like a brief checklist. Um, this could also be helpful if you need to get like DCFS or Adult Protective Services involved in the case because you can give them the information that might allow them to make decisions about whether or not they're going to come and intervene in the situation. Um, so you can see each, you know, H-O-M-S, and there's stuff, um, it's not just about the clutter, because there's stuff about mental health or um, potential endangerment, that kind of stuff, and just their general health as well. Um, I also see that, I didn't, I let the slide off, there's a very colorful uh, clutter hoarding scale. That was created by uh, professional organizers, and that was so that they can, given the, what the rating, the level of the hoarding is, and it goes one through five, five being the highest level, um, it gives you a list of protective gear that you might wanna don if you're going into the home, all the way from maybe just a mask and gloves to you know, a full-on spacesuit. 
So I talked a little bit at the beginning about dividing clients up into two different categories. Those who are ready for change and are interested in learning and finding tools to get around this hoarding problem and those who are really resistant to change. So let's talk about those unicorns who are interested in change. Um, what we're gonna do, and I'm gonna talk about each one of these, is provide them psychoeducation about what hoarding disorder is, similar to what I've just given you, creating an action plan, and then having some kind of cognitive behavioral techniques that we can give them so that um, they can start to, you know, if they were dyslexic, read better. <laughs> so let's start with psychoeducation. So if you get nothing else out of this talk and you just totally forget everything, go get the book Buried in Treasures. It has all of this information and more. It's written by all these pioneers in hoarding research for people who are hoarding or have been told they are hoarding and aren't quite sure. So the first part of it is basic psychoeducation about you know, how your brain is wired differently and how you have trouble making decisions and those kinds of things. And then it has little self-assessments. So those people who maybe are a little resistant to that diagnosis, kind of like, yeah, that sounds like me. Um, it's, it's kind of validating for them when they see that they're not alone because hoarding is such an isolating kind of disorder. They don't realize that other people are doing this too. And to know that this is a legitimate mental illness, tons of other people are doing this, it feels freeing in some way. And also to know that there's ways to get out of it. There's help. So um, for your reference, for a client's reference that's willing to look at it, that's a great book. Um, I have no money in this book, by the way. Um, if you happen to have a lot of people on your caseloads, like maybe three or more, who are hoarding and who are interested in treatment, you can start a Buried in Treasures group. The authors of Buried in Treasures created a free uh, facilitator's guide. It's online, just Google Buried in Treasures facilitator's guide. It's like a hundred and something pages, PDF pages. And they created it for Joe Blow off the street who knows nothing about mental health or hoarding or anything, who's just someone who wants to address their hoarding problem, get a group of people together and address it. So if you want to work through a book one-on-one -on -one with somebody, this is a really good framework to divide up the work with that person. And it's free. Um, if you don't want to go the Buried in Treasures route, that's fine too. There's tons of information about hoarding on the web now. Probably the best information I've seen is something called the International OCD Foundation's website. So that's iocdf.org. Um, they have really great stuff you can print out and discuss with your clients about what's really going on for them. Okay, so an action plan. Um, I emphasize develop an action plan with the client because one thing that people who hoard have encountered again and again is this kind of loss of autonomy because everyone's telling them, you clean up and this is disgusting and you have to do this or they're even like throwing things away behind their back and stuff and it's maddening for them. So if you're willing to come in there as that client's ally, as that client's advocate, and develop a plan with them, with their goals in mind, it's a much easier thing to do so that they're ultimately the ones in charge. So the first thing you want to look at is what kind of time frame are you looking at for a clean out? 
I mean, is this person going to be evicted in one month or next week? Or is this something that you have the luxury of time to address and really go through in a more non-traumatized kind of way? Um, if you do have a time crunch, and depending on the financial resources that you have available to you, I really recommend working with professional organizers that have training in hoarding disorder. They're out there. They might be called chronic disorganization. Sometimes they refer to it as that. Or a clean-out company like Stericlean. Stericlean, they're the 1-800-HOARDERS people. They're the ones you see on the hoarders shows. Um, and they come in and they do, like, in one weekend, this big massive clean out. The problem with that is it's super traumatic for the client. So if there's any way to avoid it, avoid it. But understandably, if there's imminent danger or if you know they're going to be evicted or their house is condemned or whatever, you might have to go there. Um, next, you want to identify what are the most useful spaces to clear first. And these are spaces that are important for the client. So maybe the client is just super into the food network and really wants to get cooking again. All right, well, let's start with clearing the kitchen counter. Let's start with clearing out the fridge, that stuff. Or maybe they haven't, they've been um, at a membership at a YMCA or something to use their showers and bathrooms because theirs just doesn't work anymore. Maybe that's what's important to them. So um, what area, when it's clear, is going to help your client become more functional and more motivated to continue as they are able to function better in their environment? Um, I probably should have switched these two up. So maybe the first thing to do is identify and address the safety issues. <laughs> so that kind of speaks for itself. And maybe, you know, if they have, like, I've seen um, old newspapers and magazines right around and on top of, like, the gas stove. That's dangerous. I've also seen that there was a kitchen that was cluttered and the, the guy um, used to, he had his barbecue grill in the living room and that's how he would make his meals. So we tried to figure out a way to get that outside because it's dangerous. Um, but if you have that luxury of time, it's really important to try not to pressure your client with any kinds of completion dates. Um, Remember, your client is going to be starting to learn new skills, and most likely they've been really frustrated with themselves for many years, and they think of themselves as failing again and again and again. So if you don't set timed goals for them to fail at, that's a better way to look at it. And that's also about creating opportunities for success. So let's talk about some of these tools that we can look at. Okay. So basic decluttering, sorting 101. Um, I call it the two to five box technique. If you have someone who kind of doesn't care where things are going or being discarded, you can work with two boxes. They can be just like, you know, like file size boxes. Um, and one is keep and one is discard or throw away. I also find that many people with hoarding have feel like a lot of responsibility towards their items. So if they are going to let them go, they're super persnickety about where it's going to go. So we can go all the way up to what I do, five boxes. So you got your throw away, your keep, donate. And that might even get, well, this has to go to Goodwill. And this has to go to Salvation Army. And this has to go to out of the closet. You know, you can go everywhere. Um, and then there's a recycle one. 
and then an ASAP box. That could be a smaller box. That's for that stuff that you need to deal with, like, oh God, there's the, bill, the gas bill, I need to pay that, or oh, there's my birth certificate, <laughs> you know, or my wedding ring, I found it. That's the stuff you wanna keep out of the, the rest of the stuff so that you can, because you might need it. Um, so the rules are, as soon as any box is full, you have to deal with it. So if you're gonna throw it out in the garbage, immediately take it out to the dumpster. If you're gonna donate it, bag it up, put it in the trunk of a car so that the next time you're out and about, you can go throw it in the, the Goodwill Donation Center. Um, recycling, that kind of stuff. Um, and then the ASAP box you deal with once you're done with your decluttering session. Um, the keep stuff is a little different. When a keep box gets full, probably the thing you could do is take maybe garbage bags and put items in it that are keep and then put the keep items, mark keep on the garbage um, bag, and then put them where their eventual home should be. So if you found 30 sweaters in the garage, it's gonna go into the bedroom into, by the closet or as close to the closet as you can make it given the, the, the hoard. Um, so the idea is that once you've kind of gone through every item in the whole living space, you'll end up with most of the stuff bagged up in the general areas they belong saying keep. And then from there, they're probably still gonna have too much stuff and that's fine, but they'll be able to see it. So they can start, and I'll go um, on about this a little later but they can start to make rules for themselves. Like, okay, so I don't have enough room in this closet to hold this many clothes. I have to figure out a way to start paring it down. And you can help them develop rules, which I'll talk about. So now I'm gonna talk to you about, they have the boxes and they're having trouble discarding. How do you help them to make those decisions? Okay, so um, this is a process called the downward arrow and you would use it if a client is sitting there holding an object in their hand with their boxes in front of them going, I don't know, what do I do with this? I don't think I can let it go. So um, let me give you an example to kind of illustrate this process. Um, so I had a client who didn't want to discard a Smithsonian magazine because it had a really interesting article about Amelia Earhart and it had a picture of a dinosaur that she thought her son might like. So I said, what might happen if you discard it? Well, if I wanted to reference the article, I wouldn't have it. Or if my child wanted a picture of a dinosaur, I wouldn't have that. Okay, what would be bad about that? Well, I'd feel stupid for not having saved it. And what's bad about that? It's important to me that I have knowledge at hand to share with others, and it's important to me that I'm a good mom. Ah, so if you are in any kind of mental health professional type mode, these are like bells are ringing and red flags are waving. Okay, we can start challenging these core beliefs she has about herself. Well, how would you define being a good mom? What does that mean? And obviously it doesn't mean having dinosaur pictures at the ready. It's, it's about other things and they know that. And what makes someone smart? Is it about having a library's worth of stuff in their garage? Or is it something else that makes you smart? So having them kind of challenge those beliefs helps them realize that their attachment isn't so much about the thing. For some people, it's about wanting to feel something or define themselves somehow. Make sense? Yeah, okay. I like that technique a lot. 
Um, most likely, you're probably seeing your client an hour or two a week, maybe. And if your client has a ton of stuff to go through, your hour a week with them is not going to put a dent in that hoard. So they're gonna have to do homework um, in order to practice new skills and to start to manage the clutter. So we want to encourage our client to start to schedule their homework. So they have like maybe, I always say they probably have 42 calendars. So maybe like have one calendar that's for everything and say, okay, from one to 1.30, Monday through Friday, I'm going to work on this clutter. Um, and you can build up, you can maybe even start with just five minutes a day. That might be all they can manage or their brains are gonna explode. So in the beginning though, it's more about staying on the assigned task of trying to sort than about the actual removal of the clutter. Because remember, we're trying to build successes for them. We're trying to help them realize these are new skills that you're learning. Um, and so they come back to you and they're like, ugh, I was an utter failure again. You know, I didn't throw out a damn thing. And I worked for a half hour every day this whole week. And I didn't throw out anything. I just couldn't do it. And they're crying and they feel horrible. You say, well, hey, did we decide that your homework was working a half hour a day for every day? Yeah. Did you work that whole time? You set a timer and everything? Yeah. Well, perfectionist person, you did it perfectly. Now, let's figure out what was happening while you were going through these items so that it made it really difficult for you to discard them. And maybe we can find some different tools to practice with next time so that you have more success with the discarding. But you did your homework perfectly. Those are for those perfectionists out there. So we wanna make it a win. We also wanna focus only on the useful areas because someone could really be amazing and be a decluttering machine. They've thrown out 42 bags, I use the 42 a lot, 40 bags of uh, trash and stuff, trash bags out, but because they were over here and they were over here and they went to that room and that room, it doesn't look like they've made any progress at all. But if you focus on one particular area and just drill down right there, that's gonna help them feel more successful. Okay. Um, this is something for those clients who are having a tough time with decision making. Ohio stands for only handle it once. So they're there with their boxes, two to five boxes. They pick up an object. A lot of times because of the idea that I don't wanna make a decision about this because I don't wanna make the wrong decision, they'll go, uh, I'm gonna put that over there, I'll pick this thing up. I'll look at this. Um, I'll wait until I can figure that out later. And so they're doing something called churning, which is just moving things from place to place and not making decisions about it. It's okay if they make the decision to keep, but to practice the idea of decision making is the key. So with Ohio is, you pick up an object, you are not allowed to move on to another object until you make a decision about the one in your hand. Um, and it, for the more advanced users of the Ohio technique, you can have like a five second rule. So they only have five seconds to make a decision about that object, but that's for the advanced, don't traumatize them. <laughs> and kind of what I was talking about, about drilling down in one focused area, you can use this visually with a hula hoop. So if you, a hula hoop or something where you can put like a boundary a visual boundary over a place, it helps them, particularly those with like more of the ADHD type mind, focus on just what's right here within the hoop. And if they're still kind of like, 
looking at all the you can put like towels or sheets around the hula hoop so that you can really only see the stuff inside the hula hoop. Um, <laughs> this is for our acquirers, our excessive acquirers, or even compulsive shoppers. This is their homework. It's called the non-shopping trip. Um, you can do this homework, they can do this on their own, or you can accompany them if you're a case manager, therapist, whatever. Um, so you want the client to go where he or she frequents to look for stuff. This could be dumpster diving but behind the Walmart. This could be TJ Maxx, you know, maybe you're working with someone in Beverly Hills and they're on Rodeo Drive going to Louis Vuitton. I don't know. Where do they go to do their usual thing? Because they all have their usual routes. Um, the client is going to, I'll use the Target example because I kind of have a problem with Target. And so I go around and I, I go there because I just wanted to buy a stick of deodorant and I end up $99 later with other stuff. So I pick up anything that I would normally do on my usual shopping or acquiring trips, put it in the cart, go around, get the joy out of, oh, look what this bargain is, or I can't believe it's such a neat thing that I found. And then when they're ready to go check out, they put it all back and they have to leave. And they might want to journal about it. Sometimes maybe the first time if, you, if they have someone that they trust with them, because it's really anxiety provoking for them to do this if they're excessive acquirers. So, and prepare them for the fact that this is going to be something that feels uncomfortable. Um, you can also do this, a lot of people uh, do uh, online shopping or like uh, home shopping network, those kind of things. So for that, like if they were on Amazon or eBay or something, they're putting all that stuff in the cart, but then they have to delete those items in the cart when they'd be ready to pay. Uh, for Home Shopping Network, maybe they just want to keep like a little journal of the stuff they would have bought, you know, during that time, the, the Marie Osmond dolls or whatever else they're excited about. Okay. Uh, let's see. I talked about starting rules, particularly when you have kind of gone through most of the stuff and like they've decided they want to keep a bunch of stuff but there's no room for it. This is also a way to help your clients who are having difficulty making decisions. Because if there's a rule about it, the decision is made for them. They don't have to make that decision, right? So if they're deciding what to keep, maybe the rule is they're like big knitters or something, and they have like 4,000 skeins of yarn. So you and, and them come to a decision that, I have this one box, and I will only take stuff that fits in this yarn box. So if I find another skein of yarn, then if my yarn box is full, I have to either take something out of it to allow this to come in or decide not to put this in it. So another thing about when they're deciding what to keep, for instance, they have that mound of clothes and just a little closet and they wanna kinda keep things to a minimum, um, maybe figuring out, you know, I have 50 pairs of black pants, all 50 of these pants are not going to fit into this closet if I want other clothes as well. So kind of working with them and thinking, what is an appropriate amount for you of black pants? So that might be that's five, right? So that means they 
you can help them whittle it down to those five, maybe by are they out of style or do they have holes in them or need repair, do they still fit? You know, those kind of things to help them whittle it down. You can help them with the decision making. And once they've whittled it down to five, now they have this rule. And the rule is I can only have five pairs of black pants in my wardrobe. I go out to Marshall's, I find the hottest pair of black pants. I look so good, fantastic. If I buy these, that means I have to discard one of my black pants in the closet. So one in, one out, kind of a rule. That's very helpful because that helps the decision-making process. Um, okay, so also, when they're out in the world where they would potentially acquire stuff, um, questions they can ask themselves to help with the decision-making process, like, do I plan to use this within the next month? Do I have a place to put it? so it doesn't add to the clutter. Do I already own something similar? Could I manage without it? Or do I have enough time to fix this or to use this? Or do I have more important priorities? Um, you've probably encountered, if you've encountered people who hoard, lots of projects. So another rule might be to only have three projects at a time. So if like I've seen, um, I had one guy, he used to like fix equipment like vacuum cleaners and stuff like that, he'd find them in dumpsters and fix them up and try to sell them again, although they never got sold. Um, so you know, you have 30 vacuum cleaners in your apartment, so if, you run, so if you have that three project rule or whatever it is that you and he decide, next time he's out, he runs across a vacuum cleaner, okay, well if I bring this home, that means something else has to go project-wise. So those are decision-making tools. So those were the unicorns. Let's talk about kind of what you're more likely to encounter, which is your resistant client. Um, these people might even be pretty belligerent about receiving any kind of assistance. <laughs> um, so it can be um, very challenging, to say the least. So usually what we're trying to do now in, in the hoarding community is work from a harm reduction perspective and I'm sure a lot of you are probably familiar with harm reduction, maybe like um, a methadone clinic or a needle exchange. It's like, okay, if you're gonna continue to do these unsafe behaviors, let's figure out a way to do it in a safer way. And that's the same thing here. Um, and we're gonna, I'll talk about this in more detail, uh, do what's called a modified clean out, which is only discarding the stuff that addresses the health and safety hazards. It's not about making it pretty. Right? They don't, they don't have a vision plan for their home. They don't care. They like their stuff the way it is. And then finally, a monitoring plan because people don't suddenly just get over hoarding disorder. You can't take a pill and it's all gone. So you have to continue monitoring the situation once it's been cleaned up. Otherwise, it will go back to the way it was. So let's talk um, harm reduction in general. If you are super nerdy about hoarding and harm reduction, have I got the book for you. It's called A Clinician's Guide to Severe Hoarding, A Harm Reduction Approach. Um, it looks like it's this kind of textbooky, boring read. It's actually very easy to read and very approachable, it uses regular language, not like very science-y. Um, so if you're into it, that's a great thing to have. And remember, with harm reduction, the goal isn't about decluttering, it's about what is safe and healthy for this client so that they can live and not get evicted, not get sick, not you know, get killed in an earthquake by falling stuff on them, that kind of thing. 
Um, you might have a client that's like, My, this is safe. This is fine. I don't know what you're talking about. What are you, an expert on this? Well, no. If they're going to be like that, bring in an expert. <laughs> You know, if you can trust someone who's, you know, like a fire chief or someone to come in and they're not going to like report them or something, um, have them come in and assess the situation or, you know, download online what the fire safety codes are. Yeah, get, get the experts so that they know it's not just you trying to control them like everyone else has been, right? Okay. I'm going to go through most of these things in more detail. But these are the basic steps of a harm reduction plan. Um, the first is to engage the client. So if, have any of you learned motivational interviewing techniques? Super, super valuable. This is the place you want to use that because you want to find out if there's any wiggle room. So maybe they like their stuff. They want to keep it the way it is. But they're super frustrated that their grandchildren aren't coming over because it's unsafe. or you know, they're super frustrated because they can't use their bathroom to get ready and they don't have enough money to keep that gym membership up or whatever it is. What's their thing that's like, well, it's fine the way it is, except I wish it were this different, you know, and if it got cleaned up, this would get better. That's what you want to find with the motivational interviewing. Um, that's your way in. And remember, too, you want to come in as the client's ally. You want to come in as the client's advocate. So when you're approaching someone, it's not going to be about, well, we need to address this safety issue and this safety issue, this safety issue, or this is la, 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 la. No, it's going to be about, hey, you know, you've probably had a bunch of people coming in and telling you what to do. That sounds really annoying and hard. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, they keep calling me a hoarder. Okay, so what you're saying is you don't even want, you don't even like that H word. You don't think you're a hoarder. I can totally understand that. That must be really frustrating for you. You're listening to them and what their things are because they've had so much of knocking heads with people for so many years. So if you come in as their ally, you ask them what they want, it helps to start to establish some rapport. Um, then you're going to engage an HR team. You guys being FSP providers know what it's like to work on a team and also with hoarding in particular, if you are the only person really engaged with this client, it is so draining and it is so time consuming. So if you have a team of people to share that burden with, particularly since this is going to keep going as long as this client is still your client, it could be years, right? You want people there to take the pressure off. So you're going to engage um, a harm reduction team. Now this team includes anyone who's relevant to your client's case and who's amenable to it and somewhat flexible. Um, a case manager, maybe the, a client's friend or family member who they trust to have that. The client is part of the harm reduction team. Um, the therapist maybe, some kind of medical pro professional like a, a traveling nurse or um, an ICMS worker. Is it I IHSS worker? Thank you. Um, Anything, maybe even the property manager or the landlord, if they're willing to work with them and be flexible and not be seen as the bad guy, they can kind of work in this area too. So we really want a team because, like I said, these cases are so time consuming, so complex, and we want you guys to avoid burnout because I'm assuming that a lot of people, you have a lot of attrition in this field just because it is so exhausting. Okay. 
Next thing we're going to do is create a harm reduction plan. So what are the harm reduction team's roles? What is each person's focus in the case? How are we going to monitor this case? Um, do we have like a, a Google Doc that we all have access to where we kind of write reports on whoever went to that person's house that week and so we can keep up with what's going on? Uh, or do we have like just a, a folder at the agency where we work where that's his harm reduction folder? Um, and then a modified cleanout, which I'll talk about in more detail to kind of address right away just the health and safety issues. And then developing a harm reduction agreement and making it formal, like on paper, everybody in the harm reduction team signs it. Now, I say it's very formal and on paper, that doesn't mean it's not going to change over time. Everybody through this has to be flexible. And a good harm reduction agreement is one that's able to change, and it's probably one that nobody particularly likes, but it's good enough. And then finally, managing your harm reduction plan. Um, this is about the ongoing monitoring. So once we've had that modified clean out, maybe once a week it's going and, and visiting. And then if they're hitting all those milestones and keeping things up, maybe we can move it to once a month or maybe once every three months where someone goes in to monitor what's going on. But I'll talk about that in more detail. You have in your handouts, I hope, um, something that says LA Fire Code Safety and Evacuation Standards. There it is. Um, the great thing about this list, it goes up to 15. I only fit the first five up there. Um, these are neutral party rules that allow the client to take in the information without their defenses going up. Most clients can actually buy into the health and safety thing, right? Um, so let's, and what I like about it too is it gives explanations as to why there are these random rules about things. So for number two, aisles to all rooms, three foot clearance measured with a yardstick, four feet to allow EMTs to be on one or both sides of the stretcher during an emergency and not to fall down. Reason, firefighters in full gear and stretcher to assess all rooms, front and back door, hallways, bedrooms, kitchen and bathroom. And it has to be three feet wide because a stretcher or a gurney is three feet wide. So most clients can see the logic of if they're stuck in their bedroom and you'd have to like climb over things of stuff, they just had a heart attack and you need to get to them quickly. EMTs are not going to be able to and they're not going to be able to remove him from the home to get him to the hospital. They can see that, they can make those connections. And what's great about this is we're not picking on them. These standards apply to me, they apply to their neighbors, they apply to their children, it applies to everybody. So it kind of allows those defenses to go down. If you happen to work in a place that provides housing, um, I always recommend that you include these rules in the lease agreement or whatever rules work for your particular agency or uh, trust um, because again, when things start to get out of hand, you can point to the lease that they signed or the rule agreement that they signed, if it's a shelter or something, and say, see, you can't have things stacked higher than three feet, remember? Nobody's allowed to, so let's figure out how we can lessen this pile. Make sense? Very valuable, this, this kind of tool. One thing that it doesn't have on it, which might be important for people that are in shelters or project housing, project-based housing, 
is um, stuff about like expired food or infestations of like rodents or insects, that kind of stuff. If you have rules about that and how it will be dealt with, also helpful. Okay, so creating this harm reduction plan. So we've gone through this harm assessment, the initial harm assessment, maybe with that homes um, assessment as help, and you have very clearly identified targets, environmental targets, and maybe even other kinds of targets. And what, um, oh, what's his name? The guy that wrote that book I was just telling you about. What he suggests is <laughs> to have all kinds of different targets, not just the environmental, not just addressing the clutter, because somebody, as you know, being providers, people are complex, and so it's not just about the environment itself, it's about their physical health, it's about their mental health, it's about their social engagement. Everything affects everything else. So you might have um, goals or targets that are about acquisition. Are they big acquirers? So maybe they have, you have goals like, well, before I go out um, to do my weekly shopping, I make a list of what I'm gonna buy and I get it approved by my friend Lori, who I trust or I get it approved by my case manager. So you build in little wins for them and goals to have. Um, physical stuff, like a lot of people we work with are, have chronic illness of some kind, diabetes, heart conditions, things like that. So are they able to find their meds and all the clutter? Maybe you can help them by creating like a little medicine basket or something where they store all their meds and helping them with timers that go off at the times they're supposed to take their meds and maybe they're not seeing the doctor and so maybe one of the goals is to get them in to see a physician to get their checkup. The physical stuff, psychological stuff, so are they willing to work with a therapist? Maybe they have comorbid conditions like depression or anxiety. Maybe they're feeling um, social anxiety so they don't even want to leave their apartments. How can we help to deal with those psychological issues? And then finally social capacity because Hoarding is so isolating. Most people who hoard have very low social capacity. So we can make little goals or targets for them like call your best friend Mary once a week and check in or um, make, a, you know, make a, a coffee date with your friend Larry or if they are you know, trying to connect to a community, maybe they're spiritual or religious, go to that Bible study on Wednesday at your church that you haven't gone to in a while. Find ways for them to make connections because the more socially connected they are, it lessens depression and it also lessens their desire to hoard. Um, so you've probably heard the term a SMART goal. So make sure all your goals, all your targets are SMART, which means they're very specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're relevant. And then with the unicorns, we talked about things not being time-bound, but because we're dealing with the resistant client, we need some time-bound goals. We need to have timed goals so that if he or she does not reach that goal, we can then try to figure out how to help them to reach that goal. We can be flexible about it. So the one, the example I always think of is um, like if their goal is to keep the stairway clear of clutter. Makes sense, right? Because you don't want to be tripping over things as you're going up and down stairs. They just can't seem to do it. Well, what if we become more flexible because it's now June 5th and they've decided, you know, they haven't met that goal. How about we put a piece of tape down the center of the stairs 
and the part that's right by the banister has to be kept clear, but the other half of it can have stuff. We can be flexible, we can be accommodating. Um, and I think tape is a wonderful thing, like if, you, if their doors aren't able to open fully because they keep cluttering things up, put some tape down of where the swing of the door is so they know not to put clutter over that tape line. Or if things are piling up too high and you only want them to pile things up three feet or less, put some tape at three feet along the wall so they have a visual cue of when it's going over. Very helpful. Okay. Um, developing a monitoring plan. So this monitoring plan needs to be acceptable to both the client and the rest of the harm reduction team. You wanna to start to discuss the details of this plan early on in your harm reduction process because this is when you're gonna have the client most willing to be on board because as this is going on and as he's, he or she is having to discard stuff, they're gonna become like more anxious and you know, the, the uncomfortable feelings are gonna come up. And so if you throw more and more stuff as to what the expectations are their way, they're less likely to take that in. Um, monitoring is in included in like general home visits. And these are there to identify and maybe help to correct the agreement failures like that stairway. Um, evaluate any harm potential the to the client and then just to monitor adherence with the benchmarks set by maybe legal entities that are involved, like the property manager or um, the health department or code enforcement or whoever's kind of involved from the outside. Um, during the first few months, I would set weekly monitoring visits, and if all goes well, you can move to monthly, and then hopefully maybe even quarterly, depending. Okay. So now you've identified all the health and safety issues in the home, you may wanna think about a modified clean out as a means to address them right away as opposed to kind of gradually working with them because we're thinking these are things that need to be done now. We don't have time to wait because they have those papers by the gas stove and he cooks every night and things could just go out of control. So we have rules. Discard no more than necessary to be in a safe living environment. This is because your client has been gracious enough to allow this harm reduction thing to happen, so we need to be respectful and only allow the stuff that um, needs to go to go. Um, cleanouts like this have the potential to cause even greater hoarding, so make sure that you already have your team in place and your agreement in place so that we stop that before it starts. And the client also needs to understand this is just the beginning of this process. And this is going to last as long as the client is at risk in this living environment. Um, you always want to prepare, over prepare for this kind of clean out. Um, once you have a clean out scheduled, you want to have several meetings with your client to prepare him and support him through this. I mean, you want to figure out how is how do you make this easier for him? For example, does the client even want to be there while the cleaning is going on? Is it going to be too traumatic? Figure that out. You know, make him, let him make the decision. Is the client really worried about having nosy neighbors that are going to get in his business and judge and shame him? If so, maybe like figure out a way to hang some kind of you know, awning or barrier so that neighbors can't see what's going in and out. Um, let's see. 
And then you also want to prepare that even though they have rules, the people that are coming to help with this clean out, people make mistakes because they're not looking at these items through the same glasses that the client is. So they might throw out stuff that he didn't want to or wasn't agreed to throw out because people make mistakes. So prepare your client in advance for that. Um, because once this clean out begins, you're not gonna run by every little item by this client to say this, this, this goes this stage. You're gonna have rules about anything with mold on it goes. Any expired food goes. Um, all, all newspapers that are more than a month old go. So that way if everyone does this, they can immediately start cleaning and stuff and they don't have to make the decisions because we have the rules and the client has agreed to the rules. Um, and because people make mistakes, if there are things that are true heirlooms, like photo albums or you know, a piece of clothing from a lost loved one that they wouldn't want to ever throw away, have them remove that, those items from the premises before the cleanout begins so we know that they're going to be safe and he can bring them back into the room afterwards. Um, during the cleanout, it's a really good idea to have a support person for them, be it a good friend or a family member they trust or their therapist to kind of help them through the anxiety of watching it. And if they choose to be there, very helpful. Or even if they choose to be off-site, they know what's going on and so they might be full of anxiety and distress. And then finally, after the clean-out, it's a really good idea, regardless of if they were there or not, to remove them for about three days from the place. Because if they're home alone that night and their place has just been, in their eyes, destroyed, it's going to be so traumatic for them to be alone there or to just be in that environment. So to give them that three-day kind of detox and just utilitarian-wise is also a good idea because then you can start to clean up things that need to be cleaned, like address the rotting floorboard or to redo the plumbing or you know make things safe again. Okay, so I've talked about monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. So in order for you to be successful, this team has to devise some kind of monitoring plan to assess how things are going and so it doesn't creep back to the way it was. So you want something that's acceptable both to client and to the rest of the HR team. Who's going to visit? How often are they going to visit? And for what purpose are they going to visit? Um, we talked about that. Um, and these monitoring visits are going to help increase the motivation of the client to keep up the good work. Uh, particularly if they're very positive and like you're working with them and being flexible. And then we had talked about the frequency, so usually once a week and then it can go to monthly. Yeah. All right. Stop. We got the stop sign. Thank you guys so much. Yeah.